the previous psalm was an evening psalm. Now this one, just like the one before it, like Psalm 3, this is a morning psalm. In fact, some have said that this is the next morning from the previous psalm. And that was the evening after the morning of the previous psalm. So some people have tried to read these loosely as connected to each other. And they are connected in terms of some similar concepts that span both psalms. So it's very possible that David penned these around the same time if he is the author of these psalms. But that's not necessary because they can have broader reference than to just the incident where David is on the run fleeing his son who has taken over the throne and evildoers who are literally hurling not just insults, but rocks at him if you read the account in Samuel. And some have even said this psalm is a reflection after a night's rest on the events that the previous psalm was addressing. That may or may not be possible. I don't think anything depends on that being the case, but it is an interesting way to read these psalms, Psalms 3, 4, and 5. Now, what I'm going to do this time is I'm going to read it through in the NIV, the old NIV, which is just what I typically read from. And I say old because I'm reading from the pre-2011 NIV. And then usually I pull up Lagos and we walk through looking at all of the different translations. We may do some of that. But I actually went and translated, made a literal kind of a two-column translation with the Hebrew on one side and the English right there beside it on the other. And I'm going to pull that up, and we're going to read through that line by line, just to better bring out the meaning of these poetic lyrics, because that's what they are. This is poetry. These are songs. And it's tricky to translate. It's hard taking poetry from one language into another. Try literally translating poetry top 40 song lyrics from English into any other language, you lose a lot of word plays, you lose a lot of rhyme, you lose figures of speech, you lose idioms. So when we're reading the poetic parts of the Bible, even more than the narrative parts, I would argue it's important to read multiple translations if you're not able to read the original languages. So before we jump in and read this psalm through in a couple of different translations, let me just take this moment to say if you haven't already subscribed, we would really appreciate it. We just, as of this video, we just passed 12,000 subscribers. That's amazing. We still have a long way to go. Our goal for this year was 20,000. We're not even going to come close to that. But each and every one of you that subscribes and clicks that little notification icon, you are helping to magnify this channel in the algorithm so other people come across Disciple Dojo while they're scrolling through YouTube. So incredibly grateful to all of you who have supported this channel. I mean, we're kind of building a cool online discipleship community in this little corner of YouTube, and I'm just incredibly grateful. So if you want to be a part of that, that's the best and completely freest way that you can help this ministry tangibly grow. Okay, housekeeping's out of the way. Let's look at Psalm 5. I'm going to read from the old NIV just because, again, this is my personal study Bible that I use. If you're wondering, by the way, this is the archaeological study Bible from Zondervan. It's out of print. I highly recommend if you come across one of these in a used bookstore or on eBay or Alibris or wherever you get used books from, get it. It is fantastic. My personal favorite study Bible, not necessarily the one I would recommend to everybody, first and foremost, but it's my personal favorite as a Bible nerd and because it was put together by a lot of people who I either know or personally learned from when I was a student at Gordon-Conwell. So here's how Psalm 5 reads in the NIV. The title, 
which in Hebrew is verse one, but in Christian English translations, for some reason, they put the title as a separate part of the psalm. Sometimes they'll number it as verse zero in digital Bible resources. I don't know why. It's not a decision I think is a good one. I think that they should have stuck with what the Hebrew and the Septuagint does, which is leave the title of the psalm as verse one. But regardless, that's why there's a verse discrepancy between the Hebrew numbering of this psalm and the English numbering that most of you see if you're using Christian Bibles. Psalm 5, for the director of music, for flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my sighing. Listen to my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make straight your way before me. Not a word from their mouth can be trusted. Their heart is filled with destruction. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongue they speak deceit. Declare them guilty, O God. Let their intrigue be their downfall. Banish them for their many sins, for they have rebelled against you. But... Let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may rejoice in you. For surely, O Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favor as with a shield. So the overall setting, if this is a psalm of David, if David is the author and this is related to the last two psalms that we've looked at, He's on the run from Absalom and the rebellion. He's being slandered, mocked, ridiculed, cursed, and he's crying out for justice. He's Israel's Messiah. He's the one who, according to Psalm 1 and 2, this is not supposed to be what happens. And yet this is often what happens, at least a number of times in David's life. Or possibly this is a song written about this part of David's life. Not necessarily by David, that phrase, le David, we've seen it before. It can mean to David, it can mean for David, it can mean of David. But I'm just going to use the phrase David because his name is attached to this psalm. What you have here is David in the morning laying his prayer before God, being honest about his situation and being honest about what he thinks about his enemies. This is something that is everywhere in the Psalms. It's one of the things that makes the Psalms so powerful is they are unfiltered and raw expressions of human emotion. The Psalms are not always pious. In fact, most of the time they aren't. I mean, the Psalmists say things that if we're honest, good little Christian boys and girls are not encouraged to say to or about God or even about other people. But yet that's what we see in the Psalms, because more than anything else, they are a reflection of people crying out unfiltered in a cathartic way to the God of the universe, the one who knows their thoughts even better than they do. So there's no use in hiding it. So I'm going to show you what I've put together as a very woodenly literal translation of this psalm. This is not polished English. This is meant to kind of get you as close as I'm able to do to the Hebrew text. And then we'll compare it with a couple of the other translations at various points. And we have a guest commentator because uh, Ripken here was wanting to get up on my lap for some reason while I'm making this video. So he's going to be joining us uh, down in the bottom corner here. So hey, Rip. So here is, again, I've just done this in uh, Microsoft Word. Um, this is just, it's basically two columns. There's a Hebrew column and then an English column. I think I've done a video on how I make these. I don't know if I have or not. Maybe I will. If I haven't, or if you'd like me to do another one, uh, you like this format, let me know. I'll be happy to do that. But Psalm 5. So here is the first verse in Hebrew. Like we said, this is the title. 
And right up front, Lem Natseach. I didn't translate Menatseach because there's some question about what this means to the what choir master, to the leader, to the director. You see that in different English translations, but as we've seen, the Septuagint translates it as ace totelos, to the end. So whether this is a musical term or whether it is like an occasion that this song will be sung on or was written to be performed on, whatever the end, the telos means to the Greek translators of the Psalms, most of the English translations have something like to the music director, the KJV has the chief musician, the Tanakh has the leader. The ESV goes with choir master. So I just leave it transliterated. And the same thing with the next term, to the Nihiloth. So El Hanhiloth, there's question about what this word means as well. For instance, the LEB translates it as with the flutes. But the Septuagint says, Hupertes Kleranamuses. And that's literally on behalf of the inheritance. So how do you get two completely different translations from this original Hebrew term. Well, it depends on what word you think nachiloth comes from. If you think it comes from the verb chalal, which means to hollow out, then that's where the idea of flutes comes from. That, that It's referring to instruments that are not stringed instruments, like we saw in previous Psalms, but instruments that are hollowed out, that you blow air through and that they make a sound. That's where the concept of flutes comes from. But others, including the Septuagint translators at least, think that this comes from the word nahal. Nahal is the word for inheritance, what you receive, what's your inheritance. So that's where the difference comes from. And that's why like the JPS or the new updated one, they don't even translate it. They just transliterate it for the leader upon the Nehaloth or the newer Tanakh for the leader on Nehaloth. It could be a tune. It could be uh, just something that we've just like Selah. We just don't really know what it means. And so linguists and grammarians just have to make what they think is the best, most educated decision on how to translate this term. I just leave it transliterated. So whatever it is, it's for Menachseach to the Nehaloth. So what did David write or what was written about David? So literally, my word or my utterance, literally give ear, put your ear to, and there's the name for God, Yahweh, Adonai. Bina Hagigi, Bina, understand or consider or decipher or think about. And this is where you have to decide how do you translate Hagig? And it has a range of meanings. It can mean um, muttering, or it can mean sighing. It can even mean groaning, or like murmuring, like kind of talking under your breath or mumbling. And that's why you have so many different ways that it's translated. L-E-B, give heed to my sighing. King James, O Lord, consider my meditation. J-P-S, consider my meditation. Tanakh, consider my utterance. N-R-S-V, give heed to my sighing. ESV, consider my groaning. The question is, is it talking about like vocal, like speaking, muttering, groaning? Septuagint translators thought so because they rendered it, understand my crying. Or is it talking about like the kind of inward, like murmuring or, or you know, just speaking when you don't quite have the words, kind of like what 
Hannah was doing when she was praying and Eli confronted her and she was praying because she was before Samuel was born and her mouth was moving. No sound was coming out, but her mouth was moving and he thought she was drunk and she was like, no, I'm not drunk. I'm just pouring out my heart to God. Is that what's going on here? There's a little uncertainty. And for that reason, I actually like how Eugene Peterson translates this in the message. Listen, God, please pay attention. Can you make sense of these ramblings? You know, it it brings to mind the image that the New Testament talks about where the spirit understands, cries out within our spirit with groanings that there aren't words for. That concept may very well derive from either this psalm or at least this type of Hebrew understanding of what prayer, meditation, groaning, sighing, what that means, and that God is the one who can decipher it, the Hebrew word means, to make sense of. So, That's how I translate verses two and three. My word, give ear, Yahweh or Adonai. Understand my, however we want to translate, hagig, my muttering or my sighing. Listen attentively to the sound of my cry for help. And this verb is not the normal verb for to listen. Hakshiva, this is a hit feel of kashav. Kashav is to, to pay attention, to really listen, to listen intently. So listen intently to the sound of my cry, or this could literally be translated to the voice of my cry, which is actually how the King James and the JPS both handled it. Hearken unto the voice of my cry. And it's not cry like a baby crying. This is a cry for deliverance. This is a cry for help. So listen attentively to the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. So if this is David, you have the King of Israel crying out to his king, who is actually God. For to you I pray. In verse 4, Yahweh, or Adonai, Boker Tishma, Koli, literally, morning, you hear my voice or my sound. Boker, Erachlach, it almost sounds Klingon, right? But literally, morning, I lay out before you, or I present to you, or I arrange for you, and I watch, or I look for. So I translated this, morning, I will lay them, meaning my groaning or my prayer, out for you and be on the lookout. Now, this verb, arach, to lay out or to arrange, this is the verb that's used to describe sacrifices, like how you literally lay out the sacrificial parts of the animal when presenting an offering. And that's why you see this in some popular English translations, like the ESV. Oh, Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. So they're taking that literally. I, I, I'm actually making a sacrifice. Others, like the CSB, has in the morning I plead my case to you and watch expectantly. And then the King James and the JPS have in the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee and will look up or the Tanakh, at daybreak I plead before you and wait. So this question, is this describing a sacrifice, or is this just like kind of figuratively describing laying out your prayers, you know, taking, putting all of your problems before the Lord, and then just waiting in expectation? Again, I think Eugene Peterson does a pretty good job of kind of holding that ambiguity. He says, every morning you'll hear me at it again. Every morning I lay out the pieces of my life on your altar and watch for fire to descend. So that, of course, paraphrastic, that's not literally what the text says. But I think that actually does a pretty good job of capturing the overall meaning or the image that's being presented, whether it's offering a sacrifice or whether it's prayer, because sacrifices were an object lesson that were intended to signify prayer. 
you know, the smoke going up from a sacrifice was the prayers of God's people going up to God. So you have somebody either in prayer or in worship or both morning by morning taking their case before the Lord. And not just before any God, not like the gods of the other nations around Israel who were arbitrary and capricious and you never really knew what kind of mood you were going to catch them in. But rather, this is the God of Israel. Verse 5 or 4 in English, For no God delighting in wickedness are you. No evil will sojourn with you. And so in parallel, you have these two terms for wickedness, resha, which means like just kind of bad, wicked, and then ra, which is like disaster or bad or evil. And so not only is God not a God who delights in resha, wickedness, but he's not even a God who ra, evil, will sojourn with. And this uses this word gur, the, to, to sojourn, to live as an alien among, to dwell among. Like evil won't even find temporary lodging in God's presence. It goes on in verse 6. It says, they will not stand, and who will not stand? The Holalim. Now, I've left Holalim transliterated because there's question of what is this referring to? Some translate it as the boastful, like the ones who are boasting. It's a participle. King James translates it the foolish, the JPS, the boasters, the new JPS, wanton men. Septuagint translates it with this word, anomion, lawless. Most of the modern English translations just go with something like the boastful. So however you want to translate the Holalim, they're not going to stand before your eyes. For you hate all who are doing or are making a vain, iniquity or wickedness. And this sounds really similar to the Hebrew word gavon. So gavon and avain, they're, they're similar sounding and they both mean like iniquity or bad. Avon is one of the strongest or the most forceful words for wickedness, for sin in the Hebrew Bible. And this similar sounding word avain also means iniquity. And so you hate every doer of iniquity. Now, this is not the first time that we're going to see in the claim that God hates certain people. And a lot of times Christians don't know what to do with this, right? Because God is love. I mean, the New Testament is clear. God is love and in him there's no darkness at all. So how can a God of love hate all who are doing or are making iniquity or wickedness? Well, some theologians have said, well, it, this doesn't really mean hate. In Hebrew, love and hate don't necessarily mean what we mean in English with love and hate. Rather, they can be figures of speech. And we know this because Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must hate his father and his mother or else he's not worthy to be my disciple. Now, we know Jesus wasn't literally saying you need to hate your mother and your father, but that that's an idiom. That's a figure of speech or Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. It doesn't mean that God literally hated the person Esau. Rather, what the prophet is saying in that is the people of Israel, which is symbolized by Jacob, and the people of Edom, which is symbolized by Esau, God chose one over the other, which is why Paul quotes that passage in his discussion of corporate election in Romans 9 through 11. So love-hate language doesn't necessarily mean literal hate or literal love. So that's possible when you approach this. However, while that is true, I don't know if I go that far when it comes to the Psalms. And it's again because I don't think the Psalms are intended to be teaching axiomatic philosophical truisms 
about God that hold in all instances. I, I don't think that's what you have in the Psalms. I think these are song lyrics expressing the anguish and the anger that the psalmist experiences. And so I think sometimes what the psalm says about God is not necessarily what God says about himself, but it is what God allows the psalmist to say to him when expressing the depth of their pain. So I'm more hesitant than some Christians would be to mute the voice or to whitewash some of these disturbing lyrics in the psalms. I think that there's a reason for them. So yes, do I think God literally hates people? No, I don't. I think as the prophets make it clear, like Ezekiel, God says, do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? No. I think John 3.16 makes it clear, for God loved the world in this way that he gave his one and only son. Well, the world is the fallen world including those who do iniquity. So in that sense, in a salvific sense, I think God loves everyone, even evildoers. But I think what we see in the Psalms is that sin and evil really do elicit a holy and a righteous hatred. And how we balance those two things out is going to depend on our theological commitments, our a priori assumptions about how God can and can't act, whether we think the Psalms are intending to teach theology, how much weight we want to put theologically on some of the cries that people bring before God in the Psalms. You'll have to work those out for yourself. But we don't want to overlook the fact that the psalmist, this is part of why he feels like he can cry out to God for justice, for vindication, for deliverance, because God does hate evil. God does hate iniquity. And he continues in this vein in verse seven, you will destroy words of falsehood, words of deceit or words of, of emptiness. And a man of bloodshed and fraud, you abhor Yahweh. So these are strong verbs. Saneta, you hate. To abade, you will destroy. Yatarev, you will abhor. And this is where the word abomination comes from. Toavoth is from this verb to abhor, to consider detestable. So look how some of the translations handle this verse. Lexham English, you destroy speakers of lies, a man of bloodshed and deceit, Yahweh abhors. Or the Tanakh, you doom those who speak lies, murderous, deceitful men, the Lord abhors. The New Revised, the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful, or less gender neutral. The ESV, the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. The old Holman Christian Standard, the Lord abhors a man of bloodshed and treachery. And the Christian standard updated it to be a little more gender neutral. The Lord abhors violent and treacherous people. So this is kind of what Psalm 1 was all about. You know, those who are going to be scattered like chaff, the, the people who walk in the way of the wicked and the violent and all of that. This is now talking about those people to God and basically calling God out for being the type of God that doesn't allow that to thrive. And yet in the situation the psalmist is laying out before God, it seems like those people are thriving. But the psalmist is saying they experience the, an abundance of chesed, barov, like in a multitude of chesed or in chesed to the max because of God's faithfulness, mercy, loving kindness, steadfast love, because of the covenant relationship that the psalmist has with God, he is able to approach 
See, the thing about the wicked, the thing about the doers of iniquity, the evil, the people who are going to be scattered, according to Psalm 1, they don't bow down to God. They don't have fear of God. This is what Proverbs will say. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of the Lord, reverence for God is what causes people to bow down in his presence. You don't bow down if you're not in awe of someone. And so the psalmist is saying, I am in a covenant relationship with you. And some have said, well, wait, why does he say to your holy temple? This is, if this is David, the temple would be built after David by his son Solomon. So is this anachronistic? Oh, this must have been written later. Maybe. I mean, this could be written again at a later time, but with the persona of David in mind, or Hekal is just a generic word for temple. It doesn't necessarily mean that temple. Hekal could be how you describe the tabernacle. It could be how you describe anywhere where you're presenting the offering before God in some type of structure. I mean, it's a generic word in the ancient world. So I don't think it's implausible that in a liturgical setting, the tabernacle would be referred to as a more grandiose building, a Hekal, instead of an Ohel, a tent. Remember, David always wanted to build God a temple because in the ancient world, gods live in houses. Gods have a palace, just like human kings do. And God was the one who had to say, like, you know, guys, I don't really need that. You know, heaven's my throne, earth's my footstool. What kind of house are you going to build for me? But either way, you know, if this is David, him saying this, this is just expressing entering God's presence through Torah worship. And because of that covenant relationship, he's calling on God to fulfill his part of the covenant. In verse 9, 8 in English, Yahweh, or Adonai, lead me in your righteousness because of my sorai, because of my, and this word means watchers, um, those who like, I think somebody translated it, one of the commentators translated it as lurkers. You know, it's the idea of like watching to see somebody's downfall or spying out, you know, following somebody along, waiting for them to slip up or, or waiting to plot something. It, it, that's why some translations just translated as enemies. But because of my enemies, because they are out there watching, because they are plotting, lead me in your righteousness. I want to walk the path that Psalm 1 laid out of faithfulness, not the path of destruction and the wicked. So, Make level before my face your path. It's literally what this says in Hebrew. Like, clear a road before me. Like, I'm in treacherous terrain. I've got watchers in the cliffs and the rocks and ready to jump out and get me. Whatever the image is, make a straight path for me, Lord. Guide me. Because about these enemies, these watchers, because there's nothing trustworthy in his mouth. Bafihu is singular in his mouth, but that can also be a collective singular. Like, the generic he, the he is meaning the person that I have in mind who stands for all of the enemies. There's fluidity between singular and plural that you see in Hebrew and especially in Hebrew poetry. And that trips people up sometimes, but I've tried to preserve it in uh, here in this translation pretty woodenly so you can kind of see how it does it because there's nothing trustworthy in his mouth, their belly, destruction, an open grave, their throat. Their tongue, they smooth or make smooth. Or this verb could also be the verb that means to perish. And being in the hifil, it would be a causative. So to make perish, in other words, to, to kill or to put to death with their tongue. So the translations handle it differently. L-E-B, their throat is an open grave. With their tongue, they speak deceit. Or J-P-S, 
their throat is an open sepulcher. They make smooth their tongue. So like a smooth talker, somebody who flatters, that would be the sense. Or the Tanakh, their throat is an open grave, their tongue's slippery. So maybe they're having like the image of like a slippery tongue, a sliding down into this open grave that their throat is. And Eugene Peterson puts it, their throats are gaping graves, their tongues slick as mudslides. So poetically, what's going on here, I think it's pretty interesting. It, it's talking about these, these enemies, these watchers, these lurkers, these people who are kind of plotting the downfall of the psalmist, lying about him, speaking deceit, flattering, all of the different ways that you can destroy with your words. And so you have these images of body parts, mouth, their belly, their throat, their tongue. And one of the interesting ways to, I think, interpret this is their belly is destruction. So like their inward part, this this word, kirbam. And then there's a word play, the next word, an open grave. Well, the word for grave is keber. So karav is inward part or belly and kavar is grave or tomb. This is a word play, hard to bring out in English, but an open grave. Now think about this. We think of a grave and we think of like, you know, you bury somebody in the ground, you put a headstone over it, cover it with dirt. What's the big deal? In the ancient Near East and in Israel in particular, you would usually bury in a cave or, or in some type of cleft, or in some place, you would bury it, and then you would cover it. Because in the arid Middle Eastern heat, about the worst thing you can imagine is the smell of an open grave. I mean, when Jesus called Lazarus out of the grave, remember what everybody said? No, 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 Lord, don't pull back the stone. He's been in there for days. He's going to stink. And so you have this image of like their belly, their karav is destruction. And the way you get down to the belly, the throat, their throat is like an open kavar, like an open grave. And what causes people to perish or to slide down it is their tongue, the words that they speak. And so that's like, that's one of the reasons if you read the message, like Eugene Peterson's trying to think, how can I vividly bring out the imagery of this Psalm? And he takes a stab at it by saying, every word they speak is a landmine. Their lungs breathe out poison gas. He's using war imagery. Their throats are gaping graves. Their tongues slick as mudslides. And again, not literal. I mean, that's definitely paraphrase, but not bad in terms of getting the imagery across. But one of my favorite descriptions of this part of the psalm that I've come across is actually from Charles Spurgeon. In Spurgeon's Treasury of David, his kind of magnum opus on the psalms, when he came to this verse, I love what he says here. You can see it down here highlighted. Their throat is an open sepulcher, a sepulcher full of loathsomeness, of miasma, of pestilence and death. But worse than that, it's an open sepulcher, with all its evil gases issuing forth to spread death and destruction all around. So, with the throat of the wicked, it would be a great mercy if it could always be closed. If we could seal in continual silence the mouth of the wicked, it would be like a sepulcher shut up. It would not produce much mischief. Their heart exhales and comes forth. How dangerous is an open sepulcher? Men in their journeys might easily stumble therein and find themselves among the dead. Ah, take heed of the wicked man, for there's nothing that he will not say to ruin you. He will long to destroy your character and bury you in the hideous sepulcher of his own wicked throat. Now, I don't always agree with Spurgeon on points of theology, but the man could preach. There's a reason he's called the Prince of Preachers. And I think this is a great way 
of bringing out what is being communicated in the psalm through this poetic imagery. He's not crying out because his reputation took a little hit. If you've ever been on the receiving end of like real destructive slander of people lying, assassinating your character, gaslighting you, getting people turned against you who were close to you, manipulating the truth in order to bring you down. I mean, like this is the kind of stuff that the psalmist is crying out about. It's, it's more than that. And psalms like this, I think, were probably in the mind of James when he was writing about the danger of the tongue in the New Testament and how the tongue is, you know, it's a small part of the body, but it brings so much destruction. It's like a little spark in the woods can burn down an entire forest. I mean, that is a thought that is very much not a New Testament concept. It is right at home in the world of the Psalms. And so the psalmist cries out, Ha'ashimim Elohim, judge them guilty, and then let them fall from their own schemes. In other words, turn their schemes, turn their words, the destruction that they're intending with their words that they're using against me, turn that back on them in their multitude of their transgressions, in their many transgressions. This is the same word, barov, which was used up here of God's chesed towards the psalmist, barov chesedka. Now that's being used to describe the transgressions, the, the wickedness, the sin of the people that are attacking him. And so he's crying out to God in their much sin or in their multitude of sinfulness, banish them, drive them away, send them out because they rebelled against you. And this is what ties this back to Psalm 2. Remember, Psalm 2 was the Lord and his anointed. And so rebelling against God's anointed, legitimate anointed, was rebelling against God. And so that's what the psalmist, if this is David, that's what he's crying out. But sin against other people, iniquity committed towards other people, destruction of other people's lives with the words of our mouths, bloodshed and wickedness against other people, at the end of the day, that is a sin against God. Whether the person we're sinning against is literally the anointed king of Israel, or whether it's anybody else created in God's image. So the psalmist here is basically taking this to God, laying this out morning by morning before God, calling God to be faithful to his covenant promises and watching, waiting expectantly for God to do so. And then it ends with this hopeful image. So we've started with sort of lament, petition, even some imprecation. And now we end with rejoicing and celebrating. But let them rejoice, all who take refuge in you. And that's what the psalmist is doing by praying to God. He's taking refuge in God. Forever, let them shout for joy and cover them, shelter them, protect them. And they will rejoice in you, the ones loving your name, because you, Atah, you bless the righteous, Adonai, Yahweh. And like a full body shield of favor, you surround him. Now, some translations differ on this, and, and they say like, you know, L-A-B, uh, oh, Yahweh, like a shield, you surround him with good favor. Or King James, with favor wilt thou compass him as with a shield. ESV, you cover him with favor as with a shield. Holman, you surround him with favor like a shield. But literally, katsina, so literally like a full body shield. 
And and this isn't like uh, the word for shield, magen, which is like a shield that you would hold in your hand while you're fighting. This is here, I'll pull up, I'll show you. Let me open accordance. So this is an example of the type of shield. These are heads. All these guys are heads and they're holding these shields that literally cover them, their entire body all around. I mean, think of that scene in 300 where all the Spartans had like their shields and they were kind of in this like tortoise shell type thing. Or if you've seen pictures of Romans, they're kind of turtle formation where each one puts a shield in front and then the others put a shield over them and then they march forward. That's the image. The Tsina is, is that type of shield, a full body shield. And so literally like a full body shield, Ratson, of favor. I am taking this as being in the construct state. If you know some Hebrew, I think this is like a shield of favor. You surround him like God is the one surrounding him, not just some abstract notion of God's favor. Because as we've seen in previous Psalms, God is the psalmist's shield. And that's what God said to Abraham, Genesis 15, way back. I am your shield and your great reward. So either way, the meaning is not significantly changed. I just think this brings it out a little more vividly in English. So I do see this as kind of uh, an outworking of the Psalms that have come before so far. If you are walking in the way of God, if you're like Psalm 1 said, if you're walking in righteousness, you're going to run into people who aren't. And those who are walking in wickedness are going to be antithetically opposed to those who are walking in righteousness. And so this is a psalm to pray in those situations. The important thing is even when the psalmist is using kind of like the vivid language, you know, describing them as as open graves and God hating the ones who do iniquity or do wickedness, even in that, again, it's important to remember this is the psalmist taking this straight to God. He's crying out for vengeance. He is crying out for God, judge them guilty, God, but he's taking it to God. He's pleading with God to do it, but he's not taking it into his own hands. And so that's one of the things when you start to come across these Psalms that seem pretty dark, and we're going to come across a lot more of them. To me, that's the most important thing to remember is God already knows what's in our hearts and evil is something that we should hate. I mean, you can't look at what's going on in the world, pick your calamity at the moment you can't look at that, see lives being destroyed, see people literally dying left and right for things they had nothing to do with whatsoever or out of racial or ethnic hatred or any of just the wanton wickedness. You can't look at that and not hate it if you have any sense of a moral compass. So instead, what the Psalms give us the license to do and encourage us to do is to do what this psalmist does, to lay it out before God, pour out our hearts to the only one who truly knows what's in our hearts even more than we do, and then to watch in expectation, to keep hope that he will do what is right, that when all is said and done, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 will be how it is. Even when we're living in a life that looks a lot more like Psalm 3, Psalm 4, and this one, Psalm 5. So I hope this was helpful. I'm enjoying these walk through the Psalms. This is giving me an impetus to really dig deep into the Psalms and, and to look at the text very closely. So I'm doing this series as much for me as for you guys, but hopefully people out there watching are also being encouraged and being blessed by this stroll through Israel's hymn book. That's all for now. 
stay tuned next time for Psalm 6. And until then, as always, keep training.